0: goodness total praise last week and and now this this week this is incredible you guys gospel choir we got here this is uh i don't know if that's nate burbank's influence is that no wow thank you choir powerful that's what it's all about the the grace of god that comes through the blood of christ that will never lose its power I was talking with alan wharton who's uh teaching uh sunday school with the Fultures and and he was they're going through the old testament they're following along with our readings in their sunday school class and he was saying it, it had to have broken moses's heart as he stands on the plains of moab with the people of god looking into the promised land knowing that that they're gonna screw up again <laughs> they're gonna break the the covenant They're going to fall right back into the same old patterns of sin and judgment that the entire Old Testament seems to be repeating over and over again. Wouldn't that be depressing? Wouldn't that break Moses' heart? And as we were talking about this, I said, yeah, but that's what makes the New Testament that much more powerful, that grace breaks the cycle of sin and judgment. Amen? Amen. 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 The blood of Christ offers us hope and redemption beyond the, the cycle of sin and judgment. And that was a beautiful prayer too, Lynn Wiser. Thank you that, that we confess those sins to the Lord, that we return to the Lord with all of our hearts and that he receives us with warm and open arms. Thanks be to God for his grace and the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. It will never lose its power. This morning we're going to continue our our series uh, during this season of Lent as we look forward to the glorious Resurrection Day of Easter Sunday. And we're going to be looking at another passage from Deuteronomy where again the the people of God, these two million plus Israelites are camped out on the plains of, of Moab like we said and they're looking into the Promised Land and they can see it and they've been there before. They've been there 40 years ago. Right after they left Egypt and Mount Sinai, then they went to Kadesh Barnea, and they could see into the promised land, and they blew it. Remember, Numbers tells us about how they sent the spies into the land of Canaan, and they said, okay, this place is awesome. There are incredibly huge grapes that took two men to carry one cluster of grapes, but they also said there's giants. We're scared to death. We look like grasshoppers compared to these guys. There's no way we can possibly defeat them and take this land. Only Joshua and Caleb said, no, surely we can do it. They are but bread for us. They are nothing to us because our God goes before us and fights for us. We have nothing to fear. I was telling um, this same devotion, basically I was using it at this um, thing that I I did last Sunday, and uh, one of the guys told me, yeah, my pastor preached this, this text, and he said, what do you see when you look in the promised land? Do you see grapes or do you see giants? I said, oh, that's good. I should use that, man. That's good. <laughs> but what do you see? Do you see great opportunity for blessing and what God has for you and the hope and the promises that he's leading us into? Or do you see giants? Are you afraid of the obstacles that are in our way? That was what we talked about two weeks ago from Deuteronomy 1 where Moses recaps that story. And he's saying, this time, don't blow it. Here we are again. Don't blow it. Last time, you guys rebelled. And you murmured in your tents. And you refused to follow God's lead. And therefore, God said, fine. I'm going to march you right back into the wilderness. You're going to go right back into the same old patterns of sin and judgment where you've been before for 40 years. I'm going to put you right back into that because you have not chosen to follow where I lead that fear of faith. And this whole series we're doing on brave hearts. you know, we talked about these these fears that are so evident in, in people's hearts that prevent us from following God, that prevent us from living fully into the ways that God has for us to live into. We want God to make our hearts brave during this season of Lent so we can courageously follow into the good promised land that he has for us. And we talked about how relevant Deuteronomy is for us today. I love this book. It's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, regardless New Testament, Old Testament. We know that as great as the New Testament is, it doesn't trump the Old Testament, right? It's just a fulfillment of what God had already started in the Old Testament. I, I read to you two weeks ago from uh, this commentary Peter Craigie wrote on Deuteronomy that, that just made me think of Woodmont so clearly. Remember, it says Deuteronomy is a book about a community being prepared for a new life. We're in a new era here. Hardship and the wilderness lie behind, the promised land lies ahead. But in the present moment, there is a call for a new commitment, a new understanding of the nature of God's community and God's people. I believe that's true for Woodmont today as well. So today's passage deals with That last part of what Peter Craigie was talking about, having a fresh understanding of who God is and how we as his people are to live fully into God's ways. We know that this is relevant for us today because we've been, all these readings in the Old Testament, you know, are talking about living more like God wants us to live as God's people. So far, we've, we're, we've, today is the last day in Deuteronomy. I know I'm jumping way back to chapter four, though, today. We finish Deuteronomy in our readings today, and we start Joshua tomorrow. But the, the point of the Old Testament for us still applies. We talked about on Wednesday night how the people of God in the Old Testament are the Israelites, right? They're supposed to be consecrated, set apart for God's own possession, for his own inheritance, as we're going to see here in a little bit, for, for his purposes, He wants to shape them in order to use them to be the conduit of blessing for the whole world, to fulfill his purposes and his plan for the world. And Wednesday night, we talked about who is that now? How should we read the Old Testament? When it talks about Israel, we should see the church, right? Christians are now the chosen people of God. We are the ones who are to be set apart. We are the ones who are to live like God wants us to live in order to fulfill his purposes in the world. This is highly relevant for us today. We know that these people in the the Old Testament have a mission, and we have the same mission, to to be the hands and feet of, of God like Lynn prayed earlier, to be the conduit of God's blessing into the world, to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So one day last week, I, I'd walked into my office, and of course, Lil Cook, our amazing pastoral assistant, who always gets here way before I do, uh, she jumped up as soon as I kind of walked into the office and said, watch your, watch your step, watch out, be careful. I said, what, what? She said, the floors have just been cleaned. I think Ron or someone had just cleaned the floors, and they're really slippery. I said, okay. All right, so I kind of shuffled in through her office into my office, you know, and and all day long, I could see Lil kind of carefully shuffling around, you know, and she, she put a big wet floor sign right in the doorway, and, and all the visitors that she has throughout the day, she has a lot of visitors, all of them, she, she warned them, look out, be careful, watch your step. This morning, the, the passage in Deuteronomy that we're looking at in chapter 4 is Moses saying, watch out, beware, be careful. There's a dangerous situation ahead of you. Be, be careful to avoid it. The danger that Moses is addressing here in chapter 4 is one of the, the greatest dangers that there is in, that prevents us from living into God's ways fully. It's the danger of idolatry. Idolatry is whenever we replace God with something else that only God's place deserves. Whenever we make things in our lives into ultimate things in our lives that's the constant danger the constant temptation the constant trap the constant slippery floor that lies before us that we have to be on guard against let's pick it up in verse 15 in chapter 4 we'll walk through this together it says therefore watch yourselves very carefully that sounds like lil (laughs) Watch yourself very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, it's the same thing. Out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male and female. Moses is warning the people here, watch out, be careful, because you know how easy it is to fall into the trap of idolatry think about it he's saying people do you remember when God showed up at Mount Sinai that time we had just left Egypt miraculously we arrived at Mount Sinai and the Lord showed up there was fire there was smoke there was clouds you felt the earth tremble as the voice of the Lord spoke but did you see a man did you see a physical representation of God no It was a profoundly spiritual experience and moving encounter, but you saw no form. So why would you go now and make a physical form to represent God? You know, I think very few of us are probably tempted to carve an image of God today and and pretend to worship it or or to bow down to it. But I do think that we all try to, to limit God, to contain God, to control or, or or to restrain who God is? I mean, think about it. Have you ever had a, a profoundly religious experience? I hope you have. Some point in your life been moved by the Holy Spirit, like Trey was talking about. The Holy Spirit is often the neglected third part of the Holy Trinity that we profess to worship. Have you ever been moved by an encounter with the Holy Spirit? If so, can you reduce that experience to some kind of physical little representation, a trinket that you could carry around that would somehow represent and and do justice to that spiritual experience? No, of course not. But that's not really how we try to limit him. I think most of us limit him by saying things like, well, surely God couldn't do that. In our hearts, we say to ourselves, surely there's no way that God could actually heal that person. There's no way that God could actually break the chains of addiction. That person is, is lost. There's no way that that God could actually fix that marriage. They're done. You know, we we tend to limit God in those ways and constrain him by reducing him to what we've seen him do in the past only maybe. Who are we to to say what God can and can't do? God is God. He's sovereign. He's limitless. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to. We have no right to, to limit him. He sees the big picture in whole, we see a tiny slice of it. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways, Isaiah 55 says. Let's not reduce God or try to control or contain Him, but remember that He alone is the great transcendent God that supersedes any kind of physical realities that we may see in this world. And Then verses 17 and verse 19. They show us other specific ways that we can fall into this snare of idolatry. Moses says, don't try to reduce Almighty God into making him into, verse 17, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And beware, look out, that floor's slick. Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven And when you see the sun and the amazing moon and the beautiful stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Beware, Moses says, lest your eyes be lifted up and drawn away. That's how idolatry works, isn't it? We see something that's impressive Our eyes behold something that looks amazing and good, and we begin to give our hearts affection and our minds attention to that thing as ultimate in our lives. That's worship. That's idolatry. And historians tell us that the the ancient Egyptians and the the ancient Canaanites worshiped the objects in the sky rather than saying, wow, the sun's incredible, the the moon's amazing, the stars are, are so beautiful, Whoever made them must be an amazing God. We should worship him. Instead of doing that, they worship the creation itself. They prayed to the sun, not to the creator of the sun. That's a vast mistake. God says, I've given the sun and the stars and the moon for everybody, but you are special. You're my chosen people. I've given you special revelation of myself. God's revelation and idolatry are incompatible. We have no excuse to be idolaters because we have the special revelation of God specifically in Jesus Christ. Because of what God's done for us in Jesus, we have no possible right or idea to worship anything else because God has not spared his own son in order to rescue and redeem us. Therefore, idolatry should be so far from us as God's people. He's saying, let's don't worship these idols, these (laughs) counterfeit gods is what Tim Keller calls them. He's got a book that's really good called Counterfeit Gods. Don't worship these counterfeit gods. They have no power to deliver us. Only the blood of Christ will never lose its power. Everything else may have power for a little bit, but it will fail in the end. They can't save us, only God can Only God can continue to make us more and more into his image, to redeem us more fully day by day as we look towards eternity. And only God has the ability to make us into his own precious inheritance. Verse 21, Moses tells the people, furthermore, look, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I shouldn't cross the Jordan and that I shouldn't enter the good land The good, good land that your Lord, your God, is giving you for an inheritance. The land is the people's inheritance. The people are God's inheritance. For I must die, Moses says, in this pagan land full of counterfeit gods. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Again, Moses is saying, beware idolatry because it has very real consequences I'm going to die in this land. I'm about to die. This is his farewell address. This is the last words that Moses ever says. He says, I'm going to die because you guys turned away from God and went and did your own thing. It has very real consequences in our lives. That's why he's saying, take such care to beware. And then verses 23 and 24, take care, again, like a slick floor. It's so easy to to slip into idolatry. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. It's the second commandment, right? Don't make a, a carved image for yourself. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Forgetful hearts, These are hearts that, like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, he says, What? You have forgotten your first love. Their hearts had forgotten. Their hearts had forgotten the covenant of love that was established between a good, good father and a, a people who were desperate and needy and lost and wandering in the wilderness. That love that they had for their father, they had forgotten. They had forgotten their first love. Forgetful hearts are the kind of hearts that worship idols. Forgetful hearts replace the ultimate God, who alone can satisfy, with things of this world that surely cannot satisfy. To worship an idol is to completely forget the covenant that we have with our God. If you're a Christian here today, you've you sealed a pact with the Lord Eternal that is not to be broken. And the the thing about covenants, too, this is interesting, you know, we tend to think of covenants as contracts or something that two parties, you know, come to terms on and they agree, they make a deal, and they both sign it. That's not how God works with covenants. When God makes a covenant, it's unilateral. It's one-sided. It depends on God's faithfulness, not ours, thank God, because we would have broken it many times, right? God makes a covenant and says, I will be your God you will be my people. That's how it's going to be because I'm God and I say so. And we are, you know, as many times as we mess up, the Lord is faithful and he will not let us go. That's the beauty of God's covenant. And this word jealous here, it doesn't mean jealous in some petty human sense that we may tend to think of it. When it says that God is jealous for us, that means that he loves us. It's the language of love. That he knows what's best for us. Because he loves us, he knows that when we turn to idols, that they're going to let us down and we're going to suffer. He knows that idolatry will lead to death and destruction and chaos. He knows that the only way for us to truly flourish and thrive is to give our soul allegiance to him. All of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength to him alone. That's how we're going to flourish. He knows that. So therefore, he's jealous for us to love him completely. It's a language of love all throughout Deuteronomy that's used. Now, we get close to this uh, section here in verse 25 that tells us how it's so important to live God's way. Verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly then by making a carved image in the form of anything, And by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Think about it, is is it easier for you to love God wholeheartedly in times of of comfort and ease or in times of pain and affliction which one's easier for you really which one's easier is it easier to completely adore God and depend on him and rely on him completely and desperately when you're going through times of comfort and ease or when you're really suffering when you're in the wilderness or the valley i i know in my own life the hard times that i've gone through my prayer life has never been stronger than in those moments. I've heard some amazing saints talk about how sweet their walk with Christ became when they received that cancer diagnosis, when they realized their marriage was falling apart, when they realized that their adult children had turned away from the (coughs) faith of their fathers and have been lost in searching. I know that for me in my own life, In those times, God is so close to me and so real to me, I depend on him wholly and completely. I've I've heard someone say that you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. I think that's true. When the Lord takes away things and all you have is Jesus, that's when you learn that he is all that you need. So Moses says here, look, when you get into this good land and you settle down, you start having kids and you start experiencing experience the, the blessing of God, don't forget then in times of comfort and ease who has done all this, who God still is. Don't get caught up in a life of comfort and ease so that you uh, turn away from God. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Look at verse 27 and 28. The Lord will scatter you then among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. This is not a threat, it's a promise. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. We know that's exactly what happened, right? After 500 years or so, the people had come into Canaan and experienced the peace and prosperity, the shalom of God in that land. And what happened? They turned away. They turned to idols. Therefore, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came into the the northern kingdom of Israel and wiped it out completely. Then a a few 150 years later or so, the Babylonians came into Judah in the south and carried all them away as exiles into a foreign pagan land where they worshipped counterfeit gods alone. It's a scary and depressing thing, but there's hope, isn't there? Look at verse 29. As exiles, we have hope, but from there, from your place of exile where I've sent you, from there you will seek the Lord your God, the true God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you believe that today? Some of you may feel distant from God today. The Bible promises us that if you seek him wholeheartedly, you will find him. I believe that's true. When you are in tribulation, how many of you are in tribulation today? When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord. That's the language of repentance. That's the language of Lent. You will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. Exile is not the end. Exile is only a part of your journey no matter where you may find yourself today spiritually maybe you're far from the lord today you can return to him no matter how far you have strayed again this is the language of repentance what that means is to stop going your own way saying this looks good to me my eyes are drawn away to this and i'm following this with all my heart and soul is to stop doing that to turn back to the lord and to move back to the Lord completely. That's what repentance means. And That's what Lent is all about. That's what this passage is all about. That's where our hope is found in turning wholly to God and saying, I'm going this way. I realize now that way leads to death. It's not fulfilling. This way leads to shalom and flourishing and thriving. And then the passage ends with a beautiful promise. Verse 31. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He's, he is a consuming fire. He is, he is an awesome and terrifying God, but he's a good God. He's a merciful God. He will not leave you. Here's a promise, okay? He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore unilaterally to them. You may forget, I may forget, but God will not forget the covenant. We may have forgetful hearts, but our merciful God, our good, good Father who loves us tenderly, the the passage we looked at last week, uh, two weeks ago, said He carries us like a dad holding his baby son, right? That good, good Father will not forget His love for you. You can trust that He is good and that He will welcome you back with open arms today. We can trust that God is faithful, that He says that what He says He will do, He will do. He is always faithful. So here's a few key takeaways from this passage here. Three things that I see that I want to close with. First, beware. Watch out, that floor is slick. We're so easily tempted to to worship other things. You may not see it, but we are really predisposed in our fallen nature to make idols out of everything and anything in our lives. Tim Keller says our hearts are idol factories. Just pumping out idols all day long. I love this. I love that. I love this. We, we ascribe ultimate greatness to other things besides the almighty, high and holy, triune God of the universe. We have a, ha- a crazy habit of, of turning good things into ultimate things. Is your family good? Yes. Should you love your spouse and your children? Yes. But when you make them into ultimate things... It's not going to end well because they're going to let you down. Even church can be an idol. Even God's Word can be an idol. Don't make an idol out of anything other than God. Everything else will let us down. All those things are good things, but they're not ultimate things. Keller says in his book, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God Himself can give, it will eventually fail. To deliver and it will break our hearts. If you marry someone expecting them to be like a God or to be God for you, it's only inevitable that they're going to disappoint you. It's it's not that you should try to love your spouse less. That's not what I'm saying, but you should try to love God more. That's the answer to idolatry. And not only will idols let us down, but they lead to all kinds of destructive and, and sinful, chaotic Uh, episodes in our lives Keller says an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise to rationalize any indiscretion or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it it may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries to practice idolatry is to be a slave nobody wants to live like that you want to be free don't you Don't be an idolater then. Beware. Second, don't try to limit or contain or control God. I'll confess to you something this morning, okay? I'm a bit of a control freak in a lot of ways, okay? It's true. I hate riding in the car with anyone. It's true. I don't like to ride in the car with anybody. I don't care how good a driver you are. I just, I think it's from when I was a kid riding with my older sister who was a crazy driver, I'll just say. Just white-knuckled in the car. I know, Richard, I haven't told you that. We go all the time. Richard always drives me around. You're a great driver. I just, I get nervous every time. I don't know what it is. I have control issues. (laughs) The point is this. When it comes to God driving, you can trust Him. You can completely trust Him that He's going to take you in a good direction, that He's not going to let anything befall you that is going to do you ultimate harm. You can sit back in the passenger seat and not grip with white knuckles and and be praying under your breath because God is in control. And that's a good thing. Author and theologian Randy Alcorn puts it this way, the beauty of the Christian worldview is that yes, while we're encouraged to take initiative and control what's within our power, we also know that the huge part of life we can't control is under God's governance. Scripture tells us our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. Psalm one, fifteen, three. It assures us the heart of a man plans his way. But the... This has been a live broadcast of Proverbs sixteen, nine. And since God is eternally wise and good, and we are not, we're far better off with Him in control than if we were. All the circumstances we can't control rest in His hands. Isn't that good? Finally, last, renew your faith in his promises today. Do you believe this is true today? It's the fear of faith, the fear of actually trusting, the fear of letting go and letting someone else drive for a while. What's your faith like today? Do you trust that God is a good, good father? Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us of making good things even in our lives, into ultimate things. God, we're so easily tempted to to trust in other things. Our, Our mind's attention and our heart's affections are so easily pulled away towards the things of this world. Lord, help us to return to you this morning with all of our heart and with all of our soul. You promise us that when we seek you, we will find you. God, I know so many people here are hurting today and I don't want to minimize their suffering or their pain, but I pray that they would learn to fully depend on you and that this would be a sweet time despite the suffering, that their prayer life would come to be something that serves them the rest of their lives because in this time you are all they have and you are all they need. Help us to trust you more. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in the high and the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.